This program, of course, is presented by Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the most widely read, widely sold, and respected wrestling magazine in the world today. This is the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Podcast. I'm your host, PWI Senior Writer Al Castle, back once again. Going to be joined in just a bit by my co-host, Brian Solomon, and uh, there is a whole lot to talk about. Even with uh, the wrestling world still largely on hold, uh, big stories seem to to pop up. Uh, Certainly that's the case with WWE coming off their Backlash pay-per-view and what was billed as the greatest wrestling match ever. Uh, Brian, Brian and I um, talked a bit about it. Uh, uh, spoiler alert, neither of us thought it was the greatest match ever, uh, but we both liked it quite a, a bit, um, actually a, a whole, whole lot, and we break down what we liked uh, about it and uh, well, maybe what we didn't like about it and what, if uh, any, lessons there are to be learned for WWE going forward in how that match uh, was put together with all the, the post-production elements, um, I think a real fun uh, conversation. You'll listen to it in just a bit. Uh, then after that, uh, got a really fun conversation with someone with a long history with uh, our magazines, uh, the, the Pro Wrestling Illustrated family of magazines. But interestingly enough, uh, less so on the wrestling side and more on the boxing side. I'm talking about uh, Steve Farhood, who you may know as an analyst for Showtime Boxing. He goes back um, with the magazines for a very, very long time. It's really kind of how he got his start in in boxing and as he tells it really came in as a wrestling fan uh, at first and worked as both a writer and an editor on the the wrestling side including um, with uh, the the emergence of pro wrestling illustrated 41 years ago Um, he was actually already working there when Stu Sachs uh, came along he talks a bit uh, about that and then kind of transitioned over to the boxing side and becoming one of the most respected uh, voices in the sport over there, even being inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame uh, a few years back. Uh, So I was really excited about uh, talking uh, to Steve, uh, who really reached out to us uh, when when word got out about Stu's retirement, and him and Stu go back quite a bit. And uh, a really, uh, I think, interesting conversation talking about some of the comparisons that have been made over the decades between boxing and wrestling, how, you know, what do they share in common? Um, how are they different? What could each learn from each other? And generally looking at, at how combat sports has um, moved on and continued um, throughout this COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, Steve gives his thoughts on, on why that is and, and um, why we've seen uh, some maybe uh, be more responsible than others in terms of what protocols were put in place. Um, during the uh, pandemic, um, and that's a whole other conversation that, that Brian and I have uh, with some of the news coming out um, this week about the latest positive test at WWE. So um, this is all to say, stay tuned, uh, a lot to come uh, right here, a really fun listen, so uh, stay tuned here. And let me tell you right now about the latest issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Uh, it's got uh, WWE Champion Drew McIntyre on the cover. It is the August 2020 issue. It's our WrestleMania coverage issue uh, featuring the real winners and losers of WrestleMania as put together by my co-host Brian Solomon. And there's a whole lot more uh, packed in this issue. Uh, features on Jacob Fatu, on Keith Lee, on Marty Skrull, a hot seat interview with uh, Nyla Rose, the former AEW Women's Champion and uh, so much more. And in just a couple of weeks now, the October 2020 issue um, should be uh, coming 
on digital and then uh, print after that. Um, so before you know it, another issue on the way. Uh, I did a whole lot of work uh, for this one as well. Uh, just a, a quick preview. I know that the PWI poll is going to be in there. And, uh, well, maybe I should keep some of the, the rest of the spoilers um, out of here. Uh, but I think some, some content you guys will really enjoy, uh, as always. Uh, whether you want to pick up any one of these issues or uh, just you know, subscribe and make sure you get all of them. You don't miss one. The thing to do is go to pwi-online.com, our website. You could subscribe there. You could download a digital edition right away to your mobile device, your computer, uh, what have you. It's customized uh, for digital, so not just a PDF of the magazine, but um, it's got some interactive features that are uh, a lot of fun. And uh, I think the biggest selling point always with a digital edition is that it comes to you a lot sooner than the print edition. Uh, but certainly, uh, you know, print is what, what we uh, built our reputation on. And if you want that magazine in your hand, uh, you could do that as well by going to pwi-online.com. Subscribe and save 50% uh, over the cover price. It's definitely uh, the way to go. And uh, as I like to say, we're kind of getting into our busy season now with uh, the poll that we just put uh, together. Uh, we actually just last week met for um, the, the first time to discuss this year's PWI uh, 500. So work is already getting underway on, on that one. Uh, it'll be out in a couple months. Uh, and that's, I don't have to tell you what a big issue that is for us. You don't want to miss it and everything else that we do. PWI-online.com um, to subscribe. Uh, you could also send us an email at PWI at publishing.com for all your questions and concerns. Uh, you could send us an email uh, here at the podcast as well, podcast at outlook.com. Uh, what else? You can pick up the Pro Wrestling Illustrated t-shirt and a few other t-shirts that we have out now. I think we've got a, the Wrestler t-shirt as well, some of the old um, titles that we used to put out at ProWrestlingTees.com. Uh, subscribe to the PWI Weekly. That's a feature that our new editor-in-chief, uh, Kevin McElvaney, uh, has introduced, and I think it's been a really popular, kind of a throwback to the old newsletter that we used to put out which has been about 30 years ago. Uh, so lots of fun stuff in there in your inbox, uh, your email inbox, that is. It's digital, uh, completely free, and it's got uh, uh, some previews of content coming up in uh, a future magazine, the current issue, um, so much more, some, some uh, throwback stuff from classic issues, uh, and, and the whole lot. I think they've got links to uh, the podcast in there and, and a ton more. So uh, definitely worth... Uh, subscribing to completely free again the pwi uh, weekly uh, newsletter and uh, what else uh, please follow us on social media at official pwi on instagram and on twitter uh, i was on twitter uh, live tweeting the orton edge match over the weekend a fun interaction as always with all of you and uh, you can find us on facebook as well all right joined now by my co-host pwi contributing writer brian solomon how are you brian i'm doing okay al how's everything going with you Good, good. Just uh, another uh, week. I mean, thankfully, things have got much, much better uh, here in, in New York. You know, the governor likes to brag. We went from being the very worst to uh, the very best in terms of uh, infection rate, which has dropped quite a bit. I mean, I guess the the concern uh, of that, I'm sure you're seeing this in, in your parts, too, is that people start to kind of let their guard down uh, a little and definitely seeing that, you know, when, when I've been out in the last couple of weeks, parks and stuff, you see a lot fewer masks, you see a lot less social distancing, 
And uh, yeah, a little disconcerting. You know, you don't want to go back to where we were a couple months ago. Yeah, I will say that I've been coming down to New York a bunch of times recently in the past couple of weeks for family related stuff. And I do. It, it is a lot more intense in New York than it is in Connecticut, for sure. I mean, things are loosening up everywhere, but people do and with good reason seem to be taking it more seriously in New York than in other states because it's the hardest hit. But you're right. I mean, now is not the time to just pretend like everything's OK and it just automatically went away because that's how it comes back again. Right, right. And that, that segues into um, the first thing I wanted to talk about um, nicely. And uh, the news came uh, overnight of a positive coronavirus test among a WWE developmental worker who uh, I believe it's been one of the people who's been in the audience on their television in uh, recent weeks. And uh, because of that, only now is WWE talking about uh, performing COVID-19 tests on some um, key personnel. You know, here we are three months into it. I mean, so far into it that in in New York, again, we're, we're kind of over the hump and, and um, uh, pretty low in terms of infection rate. Other states, obviously, all over the country are, are feeling it um, the worst right now, and it's getting worse uh, by the day. But it seems like WWE is just living in a, a different universe, you know, no pun intended, um, <laughs> that they're, they're just sort of now realizing like, oh, maybe we should start testing people. And uh, I guess the other part of the story that came out with this um, was word that, um, you know, one of the reasons you haven't seen uh, anybody with masks on WWE television is just because, um, you know, ostensibly Vince McMahon, but, but you know, the, the shot callers in WWE don't like how it looks on TV. Um, you know, it's almost laughable. But, uh, yeah, just, just sort of crazy. What, what, what's your take on this? I mean, uh, again, I think sort of the revelation, and, and I, I think people kind of knew this uh, uh, to some extent because we certainly hadn't heard that they were testing, but maybe some folks assumed that that they were. I mean, this far along, especially considering how involved um, a, a production that they're doing and, and putting people back in, in the stands, even if they are developmental stars. And there are actually some reports last night that they, they let some regular fans um, into um, uh, Raw yesterday. Uh, but like now they're realizing that, that they should maybe be testing some folks. I think you're being. I think you're being very kind when you say that they are just now realizing that they should be testing people. I think that's a very kind way to put it. <laughs> I, I think it's more like they knew they should have been and they just didn't give a damn and they decided not to. I think it's more likely that. And now the pressure's on a little bit. I mean, that's part of my take. I know. And I also know and I will. I, we could put a disclaimer. These views are the views solely of Brian Solomon. I know we don't always like to get political, but. The reality is that the McMahons, the universe they're in, is the Trump universe. And yeah. he's made it very clear that masks are optional, that masks are not cool, that masks make you look weak. And if that is the mentality that you're taking on, then of course you're not going to wear masks and you're not going to be all up on testing people. And I think part of it is they don't want to test because... Um, if people are, and this is the mentality, then if people do come up positive, then that kiboshes the show. And um, I think, and the message this sends, at least to me, is that they would rather run the risk of having people be positive on their show than not having the show. That's the message I'm getting from this. 
Yeah, yeah, and and those people too. And this has always been kind of the the bigger picture, and I think the frustration when you get people who don't wear masks and have the attitude of, well, I get if I get sick, I get sick. You know, I always think sort of a couple steps ahead of it. Well, they go home then to their presumably their spouse or their parents or their grandparents or, or whoever they see, and maybe those folks, you know, don't want to get sick. Um, so it's it's not just a risk you take for yourself. Uh, but but yeah, I, I I very much agree that the Trump connection is um, a factor here. You know, uh, Dana White over at UFC, who is another um, very much a Trump ally, spoke at the RNC uh, four years ago, um, has had a, a similar kind of uh, approach and um, philosophy. That said, uh, you look at what UFC has done in putting on, uh, and, and look, there, there's all kinds of uh, debate over whether they were responsible in going forward also. But at least you look at the UFC shows and they do test. They test everyone um, and co- have gotten a couple of positive tests uh, because of that. And um, um, beyond that, you, you watch their TV product and a lot of folks have masks and, you know, not always super consistent when they were running some shows out of Florida. Um, I think they they took less precautions now that they're back in uh, Las Vegas and have to deal with the, the athletic commission uh, over there. Uh, but I mean, WWE, it would seem has done close to, to nothing. And maybe that's overstating it. I mean, I, I think they've been doing temperature checks and, and things like that. Um, the, the reliability of that, you know, is really, uh, up in the air. I, I even wonder like how, how it was found out that this person had, uh, COVID-19. I suppose, um, anybody at WWE could, uh, could on their own go get a, a coronavirus sure. test. Uh, but yeah, it makes you wonder. You know, we now know of I think two right uh, on-screen personalities who have tested positive. Uh, yeah. Who knows who else is has also you know maybe been asymptomatic and and been out there on TV and sure. I don't or production people too. That's never been you know we don't know much about that. People that are at shows that are not on-screen talent. Yeah, yeah, but I mean they they very much seem like. They just want to get back uh, to normal. There's even some rumblings now about um, holding shows in in front of fans and, you know, closer to to what we were used to. You know, whether we see that um, in time for SummerSlam in some fashion. And, um, you know, uh, again, the risk here is they, they end up, you know, to, to take these steps forward. They end up taking big steps backward if, if things go badly. So. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, n- not a good look for them. And, yeah. um, you know, b- because they're always so kind of, uh, uh, investor conscious, I, I'm surprised that they would, you know, put some of these, if it's the case of these kind of personal politics and personal philosophies over, um, essentially optics and, and PR, because this looks just terrible for them. Yeah. And UFC is also, we, we can't forget that UFC, I mean, Dana White may be, may have similar political views and things, but UFC is also more in the sports sphere. So, I mean, they're more kind of, they deal with athletic commissions. They're, they operate similar to right. the way boxing operates. So, I mean, they're used to a lot more oversight and testing than professional wrestling would generally be, especially WWE. So it doesn't surprise me that they're a little bit more above boards than, than WWE is. It's a good point, and and maybe it sort of um, you know reignites that that conversation about regulation in, in um, pro wrestling. You know, 
this is now what 20 years ago plus plus when they were um deregulated and it yeah right i guess it depends on on the state i think some states were were slower than others to um to come along but the um the the thought at the time was you know we're fake this isn't real sport why would you regulate and stuff like this shows you that it kind of doesn't matter in, in in some aspects the legitimacy of of the athletic contest going on it, right. it's about um the well-being of of your performers and the fans and, and personnel and uh yeah maybe that's good yeah. get the conversation started oversight yeah. is a good thing and and just because it's it's entertainment. I mean, it's still an athletic performance, which also then opens the door. And you think like maybe athletic commissions should be overseeing other things like the circus and, you know, um, you know, uh, Disney on ice and all kinds of stuff like that. That's that's entertainment, but it's athletically based. I mean, anything that helps the performers and that doesn't just leave them at the mercy of, you know, the their bosses is, I think, a good thing. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it is just absolutely fascinating. Um, e- even small businesses, the the precautions that they've taken, you know, one that comes to mind, sort of UFC related, uh, Joe Rogan, who, you know, a UFC commentator and has got this podcast that is just tremendously popular. I believe I believe he tests everybody who comes on his show, you know, in the basement of, of his home, um, you know, so he's got the resources to do that. Uh, it you know financially, you'd you'd think it'd be nothing for WWE um, to to do this, and you know it, it might you'd think that at least part of it might be they don't want to know, right? Because if you and and going back to the whole uh, Trump thing, and also trying to stay you know out of politics, but you, you have heard that philosophy espoused, right? Like the the right. more you test, the more you get cases, you know. So. But- well, he just said if we didn't test anybody, then we'd have no new cases. Like right. that, that's what you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah, and and you know maybe that's at least part of the philosophy of WWE. So uh, anyhow, we'll see how, how this plays out. Hopefully, you know it it was a uh, an isolated case, and and we don't hear about anybody um, anybody else. And then hopefully, whoever it is, I don't think the word is out. Um, gets well soon. Um, let, let's talk about the other uh, a big story coming out of uh, the weekend. The greatest wrestling match ever, 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 ever. It made Flair Steamboat look like just total garbage, like uh, the kennel from hell. Uh, but I, I talk about uh, obviously Randy Orton and, uh, and Edge, uh, and obviously putting aside uh, the hyperbole. I don't, I don't think anybody, you know, seriously thought uh these were were even the stakes or 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 more than just kind of a promotional hype uh but really a fascinating match a really really good match it's a a terrific match i I think the best match wwe has has put on certainly in in the COVID 19 era and uh maybe uh all year um let's start there what what did you think of the match i loved it i thought it was outstanding i mean they never should have billed it as the greatest you know the greatest match of all time it's just a weird thing to do because it's like you're setting these poor guys up to disappoint but but here's my take on it i mean i would say this is this has match of the year written all over it i mean i mean we're early in the year but i could totally see a match like this winning um i would say it's it's the best wwe match i've seen in a couple of years Um, i think they did an incredible job here's part of my take now, I watch a lot of 
old school wrestling. It's kind of my thing. I'm sort of a wrestling historian. So I watch a lot of old wrestling. You know, I mean, really old, like going back 60s, 70s, 80s. I love watching old wrestling. And I would say, like, a match like this, the quality of match, is a match that you would have seen back then on any decent, really good wrestling card from around the country, you know, in St. Louis or in Championship Wrestling from Florida or in Crockett or, you know, the AWA. Like, on a decent, good wrestling card, your main event would have looked like this, like, in terms of psychology and storytelling and emotion and believability it's just that over the intervening years, and this, again, this is my view, a lot of ring psychology and storytelling has sort of degraded to this, to the point where it's much more important to get all your spots in and do all your, you know, the thing, and do all your catchphrases and moves and things that I think when you put on a match like this, that's like old school, you know, no nonsense, like wrestling match that everybody goes, oh my God, this is like the greatest thing I've ever seen. Where, you know, I think in the past people took matches like this more for granted. It was a stupendous match, but it's just that we just don't see matches like this as much anymore, especially not in WWE, that that's sort of what makes it stand out, you know, it, at least to my point of view. I think, as, and I know you're probably going to want to talk about the production stuff. I wasn't as bothered by it as I think a lot of other people were. I, I, I don't know if I'd like to see it in every single match, but... I thought it kind of was pretty cool. I liked the Howard Finkel introductions. I thought, like, yeah. yeah, I dug it. Yeah, and I thought, like, even the, the camera work, even even the crowd noise, like, just, you know, as a gimmick, as a fun, like, we're trying to make this. And they even, you know, with the with the presentation, you could tell they were they were basically saying, we're going to make this like an old school wrestling match from, like, the 70s and 80s. Like, they had the MSG microphone and everything. Like, so I dug that. I, I don't think they're going to do it all the time, but I, I saw it as part of the gimmick of the match. Like, this is like we're doing an old school classic wrestling match. And I thought it was fun. Yeah, I, I, I uh, agree with a lot of what you said there. Uh, uh, real quick on, on the issue of the uh, piping and uh, the sound, which I also didn't have a problem with. I mean, could it have been done a little smoother in spots? Uh, yes. Uh, but again, it's the it's the latest thing that makes me question, you know, whether I, I can really relate to, to modern wrestling fans because I watched it. I, I dug it. I, I thought, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the, the feedback that's been negative about the sound has been that it was a distraction. And I almost thought thought about it the other way. I, I feel like the silence has been a distraction uh, yes. lately. when when you're putting on a good match and there's just no reaction. Um, so, you know, they, they, it could have been more natural in spots and they could have maybe, you know, toned it down some. Uh, but I thought just having that as kind of uh, the base there that when you hit a big spot, there is a reaction uh, from the crowd. I, I thought it, it contributed to it. I, I thought it helped uh, sure. and, and didn't take away. And again, it's so puzzling for me uh, how you've got, I think, a lot of the same fans that were defending the Firefly Funhouse and and um, the, the the Boneyard match, uh, you know, ripping the the sound sweetening the piping in because it made it look so fake. You know, it's like to me, right. it, it's really yeah. you know. <laughs> but um, the Titan Tower ladder match was the most realistic thing that that yeah. Ever. Right, yeah, right. Or, it or, wasn't like they were trying to trick anybody. It wasn't no. like 
No, they said it outright. Yeah. 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 I mean, like they used to sweeten the sound like back in the 90s. They'd have all the, you know, WWE, WWF superstars and stuff. They'd have all the sweetened sound. I think Raw used to do it all the time in the early years. Like they weren't doing it like that where they're trying to trick you. I mean, it clearly was a gimmick. It was part of the presentation of the match. I was really like, I I went into it really skeptical thinking like, oh, okay, they're going to have a great, like serious wrestling match. So they're going to exchange holds for the first five minutes and then they're going to hit each other with tables for like 40 minutes. And, you know, (laughs) but, but that's not what happened. They carried the gimmick through to the end. It was an old school match. It was like Randy Orton had the kind of match that his father would have had, you know, 40 years ago. Like it was that good. It really was good. It was they 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 did what they came what they promised to do. Yes, I I agree. And and it it did give me kind of a little bit of a, of a different perspective on the whole billing of the greatest match ever. Because on one hand, um, as you said, it it raised these standards so high that it, inevitably it was going to be a, a letdown. On on the other hand, if you, you take that uh, aside, sort of the, the hyperbole, and realize that nobody was ever going to—I th- mean, maybe some some kids who just don't have the the, the history, the, the knowledge of wrestling. Um, for, for some people, it is the greatest match they've ever seen, uh, I'm sure, if you're sort of new to wrestling. Uh, but, but putting that aside, I do think it served some good in that it lit a fire under Randy Orton um, and Edge and all of WWE— uh, you know, it sort of like created this chip on their shoulder that you, you say you're putting on the greatest match of all time and it's universally received with just mocking and, and jokes and laughs. Um, and I think, you know, w- what what that did was certainly in, in Randy Orton, who, you know, frankly, has, has disappointed on the big stage over and over and over again in, in recent years. And Edge, who was out for nine years, um, came back and stunk up the joint at, at WrestleMania with Randy Orton. So I think they, they very much went in there to something to, um, to prove. And were it not for this billing, uh, I don't I don't think we would have gotten that level of performance. I mean, I, I, I think you ended up getting exact. They ended up getting exactly what they wanted, what which is um, nobody really talking about it being the greatest match of all time. But a lot of people talking about it being um, maybe the best match of the year and maybe the best match. WWE's put on in, in several years. So that's a total win for them. And I think it might be up, right, definitely for several years. I also think it might be up there um, as one of, if not the best match that either of those guys has had, especially yeah. I would go that far. Like, you know, it had me thinking, part of my reaction was, wait a minute, do you mean to tell me that these guys have been capable of doing this all yeah. this time. Yeah, like, I think especially been... with Orton, because, you know, Edge, it's just been gone for a long time. But when he was around, um, you know, 10 years ago, uh, he was putting on great matches. He had great matches with John Cena, with with The Undertaker, um, y- you name it. Uh, Randy Orton has been around the whole time. And I just think to, you know, Triple H at WrestleMania 25 and, and Bray Wyatt a few years ago um, through WrestleMania and... Um, time and time and time again, you know, on that Randy uh, with Edge this year at WrestleMania, uh, you know, on that big stage just falls flat and uh, it's starting to get that reputation kind of like Triple H of like, he's got a style, he won't, you know, budge from it and you know what you're going to get from him. And he very much went out of his way to to, to show like, no, I've, I've, 
I've got this extra gear, you know. And uh, yeah, I thought a beautifully laid out match. I love the little tributes to to other wrestlers and other great matches throughout throughout the match, whether it was the superplex or or the the, the chops, um, kind of the flare inspired, almost Japanese match and in, in, in fire, uh, inspired chops, the Eddie Guerrero stuff, uh, the pedigree. There was all this. It was just kind of like this story being told throughout um, the match. And I love the finish. I mean, I thought the finish was, was perfect, you know, and that's what, because it, it, it was part of the story that, that Randy Orton is such a dirtbag that when it, when it came da- down to it, um, this was the only way he was going to get the W was to cheat uh, and, and do something underhanded. So um, I, I loved it. Um, l- let's talk a bit about uh, the, the production aspect of it, because I think it's really if not the story, one of the big stories coming out of the match uh, is, you know, put, again, put the hyperbole aside of, of the billing of the greatest wrestling match ever. Um, was there something to be learned from how this match was was put together uh, going forward, both in, in continuing to present wrestling in these kind of unique circumstances uh, in, in a COVID uh, world, but even beyond that and and i think the 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 biggest you know thing here is the advantages of post-production and on one hand it it seems like this real novel kind of idea but on on the other hand it's what wrestling was for for decades right before the monday night war and um it just became commonplace that you go live every week uh you know without that safety net of of post-production but it really does show you that you know, having that that safety net of being able to clean up bad spots and edit down a match that maybe went um, too long and, you know, pick the, the best camera angle for something that, that didn't, you know, connect quite, quite right. Uh, and sw- being able to, to sweeten the crowd, you know, uh, a little and, and all of that. I do think they, in, in some parts, they, they took it too far. I wasn't a fan of some of these unnatural camera angles, um, you know, looking from the the mat up at Edge's face when he's in the middle of a, a DDT, something like that. Uh, I, I didn't think that added to it, and I, I thought it took away from it. But in, in the big picture, uh, it, it's sort of the the a case for kind of wrestling, great wrestling created in a lab setting, right? It, it's... Um, you know, where, where and, and I guess the word is that they did the match a couple times, you know, that they went through the whole match a couple times and really? put it together. Uh, so, and it turned out so well. So, right, on one hand, you don't want to do this all the time, but on the other hand, uh, it does raise some questions about, like, you know, does wrestling need to be the way it, it presented the way it is, you know, especially being live, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I was trying to figure out where that under view camera even was it was really freaking me out unless like you said they maybe like edited parts of the match together because you'd see them in a wide shot there's no cameraman there and then all of a sudden you see like a shot from right below them like where is there like an invisible camera like what's happening (laughs) yeah the 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 one thing um that you you couldn't simulate I mean, I guess you could, but you you wouldn't simulate in kind of a normal world is essentially having the fans in on it, right? So you you could do that. You can. They were able to, you know, ostensibly shoot that match a dozen times if they wanted to, and and uh, certain spots over and over again. I mean, so much that apparently Edge got pretty um, seriously injured doing one of the spots 
uh, more than once. But they had the advantage of the the fans, you know, as they they were the, the handful of fans there being in on it where they could tape it over and over again. Uh, but it does raise all kinds of questions. I mean, even about. Uh, and, and this isn't just about backlash, but it's about sort of where WWE's production has gotten in the last uh, couple months, where I think the TV product looks pretty first rate now. And one of the questions it, it raises for me, having gone to some TV tapings, even in New York, their biggest market in, in the last couple of years, where the place has been like less than half full. And I'm just thinking they've got to be losing money, you know, running in these these giant buildings and, and drawing this few fans. Do they need to be running in big buildings anymore? You know, for for years and years, um, and I'm sure you remember this. You know, Raw, Raw was taped out of uh, uh, the Westchester County Center, and 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 before sure. that, you know, the, the, the Manhattan Town. Center, you know, the Mid Hudson Civic Center in Poughkeepsie. These these much smaller venues. And on on one hand, it th- it's like unthinkable that you would run Raw or SmackDown in anything less than you know a building that seats ten thousand fans, but um, in between you know, production tricks that can can kind of create more dimension out of a, a small space, the lighting, everything else they've, they've done, and then the sound sweetening, um, you know, again, I, I, I think it all kind of makes the case for maybe stepping away from doing wrestling live uh, anymore. What do you think of that? Yeah, you know, that, like you said, that was something that came about in the because of the Monday Night Wars and, and Monday Night Raw to begin with, I mean, you you almost never, ever had live wrestling on television. No. I mean, even when they used to air the Madison Square Garden cards on MSG Network or the Spectrum cards on Prism and things like that. Or Saturday Night's they, main event, those were those were taped. You know, when Hogan lost the title to Andre right. the Giant at, yeah. at the main event, that was taped well in advance. Right, Saturday Night's main event was always taped. But as I was saying, those MSG cards, even back in the 70s and 80s, would be shown like a couple of days later and they would like edit things. They would change things that, you know, I think maybe you probably have to go back to the fifties and maybe not even then when would to talk about like live wrestling matches being broadcast live. And that's because they didn't have as much of the tape technology as they had later. But so it, it just is something that wasn't done. WWF used to do even before the superstars days, you know, they were doing like TV in Hamburg and Allentown, Pennsylvania and these little, ramshackle little i mean vince mcmahon once described it to me as a quonset hut almost like a military (laughs) kind of barracks where they fit a few hundred people you know that's just what it was done but now post monday night wars and everything the idea now is that every raw or smackdown it's almost like you or any wrestling show it's got to be like the equivalent of a of you are at a live event that you happen to be watching on television you know like the distinction between Live event shows and TV tapings used to be much, much wider than it is now. Now, basically, it feels like a TV show is basically like a live event where they have cameras. I mean, it, that that's what they were going for. But, but, you know, it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't have to be that way. I would, I mean, God, I I know they'll never go back to, to this, but I mean, NWA even showed that the, that the studio show could have yeah. chance, could have an appeal. I mean, wrestling in a studio is fun. I mean, it doesn't always have to look like like you're at a live event i think that is kind of limited thinking i mean maybe it maybe they like it because it makes everything come off as really really big time but uh i don't know i think that's also part of what has discouraged people from going to to be at shows live because they feel like i could just watch at home the equivalent of a show i would see live so why should i go 
And the other obvious thing that you lose being taped is um, the the spontaneity of, of everything. And, and right. it's one way that it's not exactly a, a fair comparison right now, because um, even these shows being taped, you're, you're not really getting much in the way of spoilers getting out because there's not really an audience there. So they're able to, to protect the, the, the results and, and, and everything else that comes out of these tapings. Otherwise, you, you can't. And, and a few times a year, WWE does tape, whether they're in England or something like that for Raw, and those um, results do get out. I just wonder, uh, or the spoilers do get out, I, I, I wonder if, if it's all that big a deal and um, the, the, the pros don't outweigh the cons. Um, and especially given the way the sort of WWE style and, and one of the biggest things is is promos, right? And and for years, you know, everybody's gotten on WWE for these like super scripted promos and, and every word being written out. And um you know, yes, it it a lot of times it it's awful. It it doesn't work. But I think what magnifies uh that and, and makes it worse is that they're counting on all these um, performers who are, you know, basically untrained actors to get it on one take uh, alive, which is a challenge even for, you know, super experienced, you know, trained actors. Um, but what what if you were able to, 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 you know, clean those up? And again, going back to what wrestling was for for many many years, and you'd have those um, the 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 local localized promos, you know. Uh, uh, promoting a uh, a show coming to your area, a house show, and some of the outtakes of those are now available on YouTube and stuff. And you'll see where they they do them a few times before they they get them uh, just right. Uh, but now you've you've got again untrained actors in a ring on live TV having to remember every word of of a promo, and it just comes out like crap, you know, uh, a lot of times. So I I wonder again there whether here's a situation where being able to to edit it i i just think that the last few months has uh, made a big big case for for the the benefits of being able to edit uh, stuff out edit stuff in you know um you you can go ahead and and you know have a match go 35 40 minutes but you know then go into the the, the editing room and and get the best 20 out of it uh, and in general, I saw it just last night on Raw in um, that tag match with Drew McIntyre where, where he hits his finish on uh, MVP, the, the Claymore kick. And I assume it didn't connect very well uh, because the only angle that they used, you you don't see uh, it, w- it was shot in a way where you don't see his foot ever connect with essentially right. MVP was out of frame. Um, and they would have never used that otherwise, but I guess it didn't connect all that well. And even stuff like being able essentially to insert sound effects, right? So, you know, uh, people make, make fun of like the, the, the thigh slapping for a kick. You wouldn't need that with, with post-production. If you could just insert that sound of, of the, his boot hitting a face, um, the, the blood that we saw, uh, on on Randy uh, that hasn't been talked about a, a whole lot. I don't know exactly what that was if he bladed or he didn't blade, but he, theoretically you wouldn't have to. You you could get somebody out there to to put the fake blood on him. You know, uh, a, a makeup specialist, a special effects person, 
and then you could have the the drama of blood in a match without any of the the dangers and just kind of you know grossness of having to cut yourself so i don't know i mean i think these last few months and, and maybe this match in particular was was really kind of a, a revelation and don't forget the things that you're describing though you know as we both know you would not be able to duplicate in a live setting so you know when you you might be giving yes. people expectations and then when they go to see a live show it's very very different it's almost like i guess the experience of like going to a concert to see a performer who is very much sort of like a canned kind of studio produced artist who who can't really sing that great or do anything and then you see them live and and they're either lip syncing or or they're just no good and you realize oh my god this person sounds nothing like what they sound like on the recorded version of this so, I mean, it, it could be something like that, but I mean, obviously they couldn't, there's certain things they couldn't duplicate. I mean, I'm a fan definitely of the whole promo, you know, going like what you were saying about the promos, because live television has led to the scripting of every single word they say, because they don't want to leave anything to chance. They don't want anybody to screw up. So, because it's live. And so I can tell you one thing, like definitely like being backstage, you will see these guys you know, pacing back and forth for like hours, like almost like they're in like a high school play, like trying to memorize, they they got like a sheet of paper in their hand and they're like repeating the lines over and over again and racking their brains. I've seen guys do this when they probably should be working on their matches, you know? Yeah. They're pacing the halls, like trying to get this like 12 minute speech into their brain. Uh, You know, that might not all be necessary, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's funny you bring up the concert thing because I even have it on in my notes here as as one of the comparisons to to draw, and I think that's exactly it. And and uh, uh, folks who know me know my my other uh, uh, guilty pleasure is I'm a big Bon Jovi fan, right? And the the uh, the the John Bon Jovi of the the 80s and into the 90s and and even early 2000s with that that big you know rock voice, he he's been gone for a while now. And um, you, you go to a show and you see it. I mean, it, the voice is just not there. And, and they use every kind of live trick to cover it up, too. But he, he just can't hit those notes. Yet they keep on putting out albums uh, with new music. And he sounds pretty good on, on the, the live or on, on the recorded uh, the studio version. And that's because they're able to just do take over take over take and, and you know, push the, the audio through all kinds of filters and and you get the the best version of uh him and and the band now it, it it's uh you know music created in in a laboratory setting and that's what edge versus orton was and which i think is so fascinating i mean it's and and if it does end up being remembered as a great match if it is is you know match of the year um I think it'll be a really unique match that way because it it would be sort of the first, well, I don't know, yeah, I guess in some ways um, the first, even though, again, some of these production tricks were around for a long time, but to this extent, the first great match that was, it's kind of a test tube match, right? I mean, you shoot yeah. it three times and you, you take the best spots and you edit out the bad spots and you pipe in sound and, and different camera angles and and all that and then you you have the best possible version of that match you know uh and i just think it, it's fascinating um i i wonder and this isn't necessarily meant as a slight on these two guys but 
Um, I wonder how much better it even could have been with with maybe a couple other uh, wrestlers. You know, the one that's come up is Daniel Bryan and and AJ Styles, who ironically worked together two nights uh, before this on on SmackDown and and um, also had a great match. I think without you know some of the bells and whistles and smoke and mirrors that that um, Edge and Orton had. But imagine um, again two two other wrestlers getting this treatment. You know, and and uh, I do think some of it could stick around. I do think some amount of of um, sound sweetening is fine, and uh, WWE is getting a lot of heat from it. But I think uh, baseball's been doing it in uh, Korea, uh, South Korean baseball, uh, because they've been playing in front of empty uh, audiences. I think the NFL has said that that they're looking at doing it when they come back on on TV, and. Um, Again, I don't. I don't think that's a distraction. I think it's the the silence is the the distraction. Yeah, wrestling is an, is illusion. I mean, it, it's about illusion, and it is especially in the modern world. It is a television show, and this is how yeah. you produce a television show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, Brian, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Uh, as always, um, hope to do it again uh, next week. Absolutely. I think we should start calling this the greatest podcast ever. <laughs> well, it's going to take me doing a, a lot of uh, post-production now to, <laughs> to get us there. I'm going to add some cheers and maybe clean up some of my uh, my ticks, a lot of my ums and all that. <laughs> yeah, take out my political views, you know. All that. Exactly. And we'll get there. All right, Brian. Have a good one. Thanks, Al. All right, I want to thank Brian for a fun conversation, as always. And right now, uh, let's hear another conversation. This one with International Boxing Hall of Fame inductee and Showtime boxing analyst, Steve Farhood. Can I, can I ask uh, where you are right now? Yeah, I'm in uh, New York City in Manhattan, where I live in my apartment. Okay, so we're kind of in the same boat. I'm, I'm over on uh, Long Island, Valley Stream, uh, oh. not too far from the old offices, right? Right, exactly. I started out in Freeport and then moved to Rockville Center, sure. Yeah. So I wanted to, to talk to you a, a bit about that. I mean, you, every so often we've had uh, one of the uh, the writers from the, the glory days of the magazine uh, here on the podcast. No, never anybody from the uh, the boxing side, uh, although we did have the, the, uh, the former uh, art director that I worked, uh, that I think worked on both sides. Uh, his name escapes me. What's, what was his name? Morgan. Yes, yes, uh, who is a lot of fun to talk to. And, um, you know, with, with Stu's retirement, there's been a lot of talk about how, you know, that, that, that saying that I guess that uh, uh, Stanley Weston would say that um, wrestling paid for the first uh, four floors and, and boxing paid for the fifth one, right? something like that. What Was that your experience when, when you were there in the magazines that e- even though it seems like, you know, boxing had uh, sort of more prestige as far as the magazines – um, the, the, the real demand was on the wrestling side? Well, yeah, there are a couple of reasons for that. I, I think the, the wrestling interest was more cyclical. It went up, it went down. The boxing was steadier. But boxing being closer to real journalism, the magazines took more work where a wrestling article, we could literally write it once we had the photos in, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. So we were able to put out a lot more titles in the wrestling end of things because they took less time. As a result of that, obviously, the wrestling titles brought in more money. Did you work on both sides, or were you exclusively yes. on the boxing side? No, when I started, I started in September 1978. I was 21 years old. It was my first job in the industry. And I wrote and edited wrestling copy 
most of the wrestling writing at the time was done by Gary Morgenstein mm-hmm. and some by Dan Shockett. But I, I edited the copy. I wrote my own column and I did some writing. And then I would I say from pretty much from the beginning, I spent most of my time on the boxing. Um, and then after about being there about a year, Randy Gordon, who also worked on both sides, left to go to the Ring magazine. And that made me the one man boxing staff. So a lot more of my time was spent on boxing. But I, I did. I worked on wrestling pretty much steadily for a number of years. Um, not quite as much as the others, but uh, I did write and edit quite a bit. Did you come to the magazines as as both a wrestling fan, as a boxing fan or one or neither? Well, actually, I would say I was probably more of a wrestling fan. Really? Not okay. necessarily at that exact time. But as a kid growing up, I, I go back to the days of Vince McMahon Sr. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, Bruno Sammartino. And I went to the Garden as a wrestling fan as a kid. You know, as soon as I think the age was 14, you had to be. So as soon as I was in middle school, I went. Boxing was in the 70s when I was growing up was very much just Muhammad Ali centric. And, you know, he, I, I was an Ali fan. I went to a lot of the fights, but I, I was not a huge boxing fan. Not certainly not more so than other sports. But wrestling, I was I was into it. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, I often say this about wrestling. There are two types of people, people who admit that they're wrestling fans and people who lie about being wrestling. Fans. <laughs> At some point or another, everybody was into it, especially, you know, if you're around my age. Where, where are you these days uh, as far as that? I mean, do you still identify yourself as a wrestling fan at all? Not too much. I will I will put it on uh, my connection to wrestling now is really with Mauro Ranallo. Mm-hmm. I guess it's NXT uh, for, for, for Vince. That's terrific, yeah. Yeah, and, and Morrow, of course, is a, is a combat sports expert. He does everything, MMA, boxing, wrestling, everything. So he sort of keeps me in touch. But, you know, when I'm channel surfing, especially over the last three months, um, when I put it on, I have trouble taking it off. I'll put it that way. I don't <laughs> sit on top of it like I used to. But uh, the memories I have of working on the magazines, specifically with those guys and such a unique job of memories that even though it's been 40 years or close to it, uh, I cherish very much. And I love hearing those stories. Uh, as you know, Stu just uh, about a week and a half ago retired um, right. after being there 41 years. Do, do you remember him as kind of the new, the new kid? Yeah, well, I was I was not there very long either. I think Stu started maybe maybe a year after I did. Um, I think Stu's a year older than me, but we were very close. And in those days, both single and Stu spent a lot of time with me in the city and I spent a lot of time with him on the island. And uh, we were very close and, you know, remained in touch long after I left the magazines and Stu, of course, stayed. So, yeah, my mem- my memories are, are fantastic. Uh, when I first started, Stu wasn't there yet, but uh, he came a short time after that. Yeah. Can, can you believe that, you know, up until a couple of weeks ago, he was still doing this? No, I cannot believe it. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> yeah. cannot. But then again, there's after, and you know, after is a unique individual, obviously. And Bill is still doing it now. That doesn't surprise me at all, because knowing Bill, he was he was the the, the backbone of the wrestling, and the fact that he's whatever age he is now. I know he's older than me. I don't know how old, how much older, but the fact that he's still involved does not surprise me at all. Yeah. So when there was very much um, uh, two departments uh, in the magazines, the the boxing and the wrestling was it always harmonious were there folks um on on either side and, and i would think it'd be more like likely to happen 
on on the boxing side, especially I would think in, in the 70s uh, and the 80s where not everybody was smartened up to wrestling. But but was there any kind of thumbing the no your nose at the wrestling side, you know, uh, seeing it as less credible, less legitimate, the folks that worked on that side? No, I don't think so. Not at all. I don't remember that at all. And I think the main reason for that is we understood the difference between the two genres. You know, one was one was largely creative writing and the other was more journalistic in its approach. So not, not at all. And also, you know, the boxing people, Randy Gordon and myself, um, and then after that, Jeff Ryan and a few others, we realized, you know, hey, part of the reason we get quarterly bonuses is because of the wrestling magazine. So we, mm. we love them. And, and I personally... For at least the brief time I did it, I loved writing, you know, the articles. I, it was a tremendous uh, chance to be creative and to go uh, out of the box, which you couldn't always do in the wrestling, so in the, in the boxing. So uh, I loved it. Yeah. Is there an era that you get most nostalgic for on the wrestling side? Well, I guess the time that I was doing it was 78 through early 80s. So you might be able to, as a as more of a historian than me, be able to place where wrestling was at that point. But I do remember very well the beginning of P PWI and being part of that and, um, you know, some of the stories that go with that. Yeah. So really before the, the real explosion with um, the, the expansion of um, Vince McMahon Jr.'s WWF and Hulkamania and WrestleMania, a little bit shy of that, you're talking kind of the Bob Backlund era and the Superstar Graham era and Pedro Morales and, and those types. Yeah, and, and I guess over the years, and we're talking decades, the relationship between our company, London Publishing, and the WWE, or at the time WWF, I guess, yeah. uh, changed a lot. It was always changing. Because I remember Bill after taking me once, only once, to the garden where I actually sat on the apron while Bill was taking pictures. And what I remember most about that, just to kind of place this in, in historical perspective. Bill took me back to the dressing rooms and we walked in and there was a heel and a baby face in the room together. And as soon as they saw me, because they didn't know me, they ran in different directions. Really? Wow. I mean, that, that's kind of hard to believe today where it's all understood how everything works. But back then, that's how that's how private they were about who they knew. They knew Bill, obviously. He, he was part of the, the shtick. But they didn't know me, and, and that's what they did. And I'll never I'll never forget that, because I didn't know what was going on. And Bill said, no, you, you have to understand. They don't know you. They don't know if they can trust you. So that that's how private they were in those days. Yeah. That um, a sort of a, a prestige surrounding boxing um, as compared to wrestling, I, I think, extended into wrestling, uh, certainly in the 70s and, and in the 80s. I, I remember, as I'm sure you do, Muhammad Ali mixing it up with, um, Gorilla Monsoon and sure. the uh, the Ali Inoki uh, match, and it it seemed like wrestling for for a long time w was always trying to kind of grab a little bit of the legitimacy of of boxing. It gave him some some cred, some some rub. What was that your experience? Do you do you remember seeing that kind of close up? Yeah, I think there was, and also I think that what a lot of people fail to acknowledge or realize is how close the two sports are really linked. I mean, first of all, a lot of people don't know that Muhammad Ali's entire act was based on a wrestler, Gorgeous George, mm -hmm. who, of course, was well before the baby boomers era. But nonetheless, that's true. And the other thing is you take a guy like Vince McMahon Sr., who was a, a regular promoter of professional boxing matches for a large part of his career, I think, in the D.C. area. So, you know, and then also years later, when Sugar Ray Leonard fought Donnie Lalonde in a big pay-per-view right. fight, 
the late 80s, Junior promoted that. So, you know, there was never, I never saw that big a difference between the two sports, you know, and, and people who did, I think, had a little bit of a, had their noses up in the air about the legitimacy of boxing. But other than the outcome of the matches, and even that sometimes in boxing, in the yeah. 50s at least, was prearranged, um, yeah. there wasn't that much of a difference between the two sports. They were both entertainment. Yeah, and, and it extends even um, into today. I don't know if you've been watching uh, at all, but, but Mike Tyson made an appearance on uh, AEW a couple of weeks ago, and they're at least hinting at some kind of match, fight, I don't know what it would be, b- between uh, Tyson and AEW's top guy, uh, Chris Jericho. So um, do, do you think, uh, I mean, I, I think to the, the wrestling magazines um, in the 80s and how they were uh, – the covers were dominated so often by Hulk Hogan. And then in, in the nineties, the rock and Steve Austin, and then more in my era, um, John Cena, you, you always, you know, got those, those, those cover guys uh, so popular. And I remember, um, you know, as a kid going to the newsstands, the equivalent of that was Mike Tyson, right. On, on the boxing, um, magazines. Um, so, uh, and, and I think it would, it would have been even more challenging um, on on the boxing side. Well, I guess in the eighties there there were stars that could carry covers other than Mike Tyson, right? Leonard and Hagler and uh, early eighties, yeah. Yeah. What do you remember about those those meetings about um, you know who who goes on the cover this month? Well, much as Muhammad Ali was the only guy you wanted to put on the cover in the seventies, um, that was Sugar Ray Leonard the first half of the eighties. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he was just, you know, he was guaranteed sales. And then after Ray retired uh, and that whole Four Kings era kind of faded out, then you had Tyson who came along and he was a whole different ballgame. You know, he was a different cat entirely. But with the with the boxing, you, you, you tended to go back to what was, you know, familiar and what you knew would sell. And there weren't that many names. You couldn't you couldn't put on like the featherweight on the cover. It was Ali. Then it was Leonard maybe Hagler a little bit, and then it was Tyson. And after Tyson came the 90s, and that was still Tyson a little bit, although he was the train wreck Tyson at that point. Mm -hmm. And then Chavez and a few others. But uh, there weren't that many choices to be had. And I don't know if it was different in the wrestling. I really don't recall. But, you know, in my early days, it was Bruno. And then after that, I guess Hulk Hogan, you know, and it exploded. But I just remember the wrestling just, you know, peaking and and slowing and then peaking and slowing. Always different, you know, in terms of the sales. The, the advantage I imagine the wrestling magazines uh, had, and, and you touched on it before, is, you know, and, and I've heard Stu and, and Bill and, and Craig Peters discuss this, you know, very often the, the, the story that would be the main story off would be built off of a photo. So they would shoot a photo first and then they'd come up with a story for the photo that they want to run. Um, and you could, right? Because you could just kind of pull it from thin air and, and come up with something. In your case, if you wanted that Tyson photo on the cover again, you had to come up with something, right? That was was legit sure. and some new angle. Uh, what what was the, the the challenge of that, or was the the story there first, and then you decided who would go on the cover? Well, it changed over the years, largely because of communications and how the internet changed everything. But you have to remember that for a long time, in the in the 80s at least, you know, obviously pre-internet. Um, the stories we would write on fights very often were the first in-depth stories the readers would see. And you can't get away with that today in wrestling or boxing because everybody sees everything right away. 
So obviously you change the emphasis of what the articles are about. But we would uh, the biggest the biggest frustration we had, and I think this was a much bigger frustration for the boxing than the wrestling, was the the lag time of the magazines. You know, we would write something and it wouldn't be on the newsstand for you know six weeks to eight weeks, and that was it. Imagine that today. You know, you could never get away with that today. But back then we did the best we could. Distribution was what it was. Putting the magazines together was what it was, and there was a very long lead time between writing, editing. Kenny Morgan finalizing the the artwork and and then the magazines you know being available to the to the viewers, to the readers. So it was a it was a big difference. That that changed slowly, but uh, you know that that was a major change. Did, did you say you think that it was more of a problem on the the boxing side? Because I would have thought it been less of a problem because wrestling was built on weekly television. So those um, storylines are are developing week after week after week. And then you check in whatever it is six weeks later in in boxing, the the big super fights have always been spaced out quite a bit. Right. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, Tyson or anybody else was fighting every week. Yeah, that's true. But in the early in the late 70s, early 80s, it was a golden time for boxing, non heavyweights, interestingly, mostly the four kings and boxing was on network television on the weekends on ABC, CBS and NBC virtually every weekend. So there were very few fights that weren't televised. I think the difference with wrestling, I remember as a kid, I was fascinated by the wrestlers I didn't get to see on TV. So I only got to see the McMahon fighters, the East Coast, Northeast Coast fighters, the Bruno Sammartinos and those guys. But when it came to Harley Race or uh, Ric Flair or, or uh, you know, even Buddy Rogers, who, who was more of a Midwestern guy, um, those were the guys I was fascinated with. So that gave me reason to want to read those magazines, to read about these wrestlers I never saw. In boxing in the 80s, we saw everybody. So there, there, were, there were no secrets. There was, there was no exposing somebody or, or giving him publicity because he's already been on national television. Right. There weren't really territories. It was all kind yeah. of national and even international uh, on the boxing side. Yeah. Um, so, so, so moving more to, to modern times, because I think there's so much going on right now that is relevant um, throughout combat sports, uh, certainly with, with the whole COVID-19 um, epidemic. And um, boxing just put on their, their first event uh, a week or two ago, right? Uh, and, and similar to what pro wrestling has done for a while now, and, and we've seen out of uh, the UFC, uh, no fans. Is that right? Correct. No fans, maybe less, certainly less than 100 people in the building, which is comprised of, you know, seconds and commission members and medical people and, and the fighters in their camps. Yeah. So it, it's been really interesting how much the, the the absence of fans have affected the different sports. Uh, and I haven't seen uh, uh, boxing without fans. I, I know, I, I think UFC has gotten through it better than people expected. Um, and even some advantages of, of hearing the corners uh, uh, more closely and listening to, you know, a fist on, on skin, you know, the, the, those thuds mm-hmm. um, wrestling, I think has been hurt tremendously by it so much that they've, they've figured out how to get some fans in the building. They've had um, uh, WWE's had, uh, and, and well, both AEW and WWE have had wrestlers or trainees double as fans and they've, um, placed them uh, in the audience, at just a few dozen to create some kind of uh, um, ambiance there. Um, h- how much did it take away from boxing not having uh, fans there in the stands? Well, I can speak firsthand to it because the last fight I did for Showtime, which was actually the last sporting event televised 
pre-pandemic was March 13 in Hinckley, Minnesota. Sounds like right when the spit hit the fan, yeah. so to speak. And we did a show and there were very few people in the arena. So it, it didn't affect the fighters that much. And it didn't affect, interestingly, it didn't affect the broadcast that much. Now, in flipping channels, I don't know, maybe a month or so ago, I remember hit, flipping channels to something that was, I guess it was from Orlando. Is there wrestling in Orlando now? Um, yes. So so I think it's pretty much what WWE has been operating out of is their performance center, which is like a little training facility um, in Orlando. And that's where, that's where they yeah. did WrestleMania this year. Okay, I think I think I've done boxing in the same event in the same venue, and um, the, the, for the thirty seconds I had it on, it did not look good and it did not sound good. Mm-hmm. So from, from the little bit I saw, it's I agree with you. It seemed to to affect the wrestling, not having the audience far more than it did, did the boxing. Really? How, but, how but much? Do... One last point about that: we haven't had any big boxing matches yet without an audience. The shows right. that have been on ESPN the last couple of weeks and will be on again tonight. Or what I'd call club shows, not not huge shows. I think the lack of an audience, of a live audience, will be much more pronounced and will be felt more when we have the really bigger fights. Do you think that they happen? I mean, um, do you think that they they hold off on uh, a big fights until there's some return to normalcy, or is that so far out in the distance that you just kind of get back, got to get back to work and and put on those big fights? Well, you know, fighters have a, a, a very limited window of performing. And I can't see fighters waiting this out until there's an audience in the, in the second quarter of 2021 or whenever it is. I just can't see it. You know, fighters want to make money. They want to make it now. If they make a little bit less, they make a little bit less. So I, I don't think that, that the lack of audience is necessarily going to stop promoters, networks, or anybody else from televising big fights. How much do you think um, it affects the the fighters? Because uh, on the the MMA side, I think it cuts both ways. I, th- I think there are some fighters that that thrive on that. Um, you know, they they they, they get the adrenaline um, pumping through the range from a crowd being real hot. But then there are also others that um, want to focus, and for them, the crowd could be distracting. In wrestling, it, it's sort of the opposite, right? I mean, the fans are everything. You know, you hear the greats like like Ric Flair, uh, and they talk about how the the layout, the design of a match is largely built on that reaction of the fans. I mean, you, you go on that ride, and and the, the, the pace of the match is dictated by kind of the, the rhythm and the ebbs and flows of, of a live crowd. In, in boxing, where do they land? I think that's an interesting point, and I think there's such a difference because, let's face it, at the top level, there is no excuse for a professional wrestling match ever to be boring. And matter yeah. of fact, it never is boring. It's always <laughs> entertaining. That's the whole you point. You haven't watched uh, <laughs> much wrestling in, in recent years. Wrestling can very much be boring. <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe I'm not as in touch with it as I should be. But, you know, when you watch a big match in WrestleMania, the whole yeah. point is to turn the crowd on, you know, and, and, the, and obviously the performances of the wrestlers are largely determined by, you know, the, the, the reaction the fans give them. In boxing, you do get style matchups that create boring fights. And in those cases, I don't think there's going to be any difference between having an audience and not having an audience. Another thing about boxing is that because it's so related, so closely related to casinos, a lot of times the fighters in a big fight are not from the area they're fighting in. You know, there are very few fighters from Las Vegas. So in that sense, club shows where you do have a fighter from Minnesota fighting in Minnesota 
where you have a fighter from Atlantic City fighting in Atlantic City. Those kind of fights are going to be affected more by not having a crowd than, than some of the bigger fights, which are almost always in casino atmospheres, without either fighter having any kind of fan base there. Yeah. Have, have you uh, watched at all the, the precautions taken or not taken, for that matter, um, by UFC or WWE? And, um, you know, any thoughts on, on, on who's done it right? I mean, for, for what it's worth, just overnight, the story broke that um, one of these WWE, WWE uh, developmental uh, trainees that have uh, been put in the in the audience to kind of simulate a crowd um, turned up to have tested positive. And now there's some concern um, there. And WWE is just now, wherever we are, three months and change into uh, this pandemic, saying that they're going to start to test some of their personnel. Th- that's uh, very much a departure from from UFC, uh, which has been testing everybody um, in, in doing uh, these shows. Uh, w- what do you think is is the, the responsi- responsibility of a promoter in, in taking those precautions and putting on a, a live event like this? Well, it's a very interesting subject. And I think that in, in a sense, the reality to a boxing promoter or a boxing commission is not all that different from what we see in the bigger picture, because in the bigger picture, there's science versus politics. Mm-hmm. Clearly, both have a place in this um, politics as related to economics, as related to people out of work who need to get back to work, etc. I think that the UFC was really anxious to be first out of the box, and they were. And I, did, how did they handle it? I, I can't speak for wrestling and the protocols they put into place, but UFC, one of the one of the uh, mixed martial artists did test positive, and mm-hmm. I know that I think it was Joe Rogan or one of the announcers, um, you know, shook hands with or slapped fives or something with what the winner of one of the main events, which was of course a very bad optic. Um, I think we're all learning, you know, just as Showtime, my network, will learn from what ESPN has done in the last couple of weeks. So it's, it's all evolving. But hell, we don't even know where the, the pandemic is at this point in various places. Yeah. So everything's, everything's you know, everything's still up in the air. And, and, and proper protocol is very difficult to establish. But, uh, you know, the, the, the PR hit that wrestling, MMA or boxing would take if, if a large portion of the people start testing positive is immeasurable. Yeah, yeah. What, what's your comfort level in being back in an arena with... Um, even if there are, you know, some kind of uh, capacity uh, restrictions, uh, you know, a quarter of, of capacity, but, but being in an arena with, with hundreds, if not thousands uh, of, of boxing fans and support staff, production staff, what's your comfort level to returning uh, to something like that? Well, anybody who says they're not worried about it at all is, is full of it. I mean, you know, we, we're all concerned, again, because of th- this is a moving target we're dealing with. We don't know where it's at. I do know that Showtime is owned by CBS. CBS last weekend put on a golf tournament. They, they're putting on another golf tournament this weekend. So we're going to benefit from CBS putting in certain protocols that will apply to us when we finally do live boxing. Um, that makes me feel good that Showtime is owned by such a big company that will take this very seriously. You know, um, I, I'm confident in my bosses, our immediate staff, you know, the producer and the executive producer. To make us as safe as possible, and as a result, I, I I feel pretty good. How how do I feel about flying? Not great. Yeah. But you know, it's also going to be another month or so before I have to do it. 
hopefully things will improve. If things go downhill, will we consider that? What, what does it say about uh, combat sports in general? And, and I don't know how much boxing deserves to be uh, lumped in here, but that they were the first out of the gate and, and in some cases never even shut down. WWE never took a break. I mean, I don't think they've missed one show um, during during the uh, in, entire pandemic. Uh, but but UFC also and Dana White sung gung ho, so gung ho to to get back, and in in some respects, at least in terms of the the safety of the athletes, you'd think that these would be the 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 last to come back, just because you're talking by the the nature of the sport, you know, two two athletes skin on skin, sweating over each other, bleeding all over each other, spitting all over uh, each other, and and I know the. The, the safety of the of the athletes is only um, one part of the, of the concern in a live sporting um, um, event like that, but but it's a big one. And you know, you touched sure. on the UFC fighter that that tested positive, and they did catch it in time for him to be pulled from the show. But you've just got to think, law of averages, there has been a UFC fighter who um, had the coronavirus, or a WWE wrestler who had the coronavirus who worked a match with someone else and, and maybe a, a boxer um, for that case, too. So what, what does it say about combat sports that they were in such a rush compared to every other professional sport to get back? Well, I, I think they wouldn't characterize it as being in such a rush. You and I may to a degree. But I, I think I can explain a large difference between the major sports and, and MMA wrestling and boxing with one word. And it applies to this, and that's union. Mm. These athletes in baseball, basketball, and football, and hockey are represented by a union, and that union is looking after them. Who is looking after, you know, in, in, in a million different ways, who's ever looking after a boxer or a wrestler or a mixed martial artist? Certainly, they don't have the protection in general that would be afforded the, the athletes that have unions. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, and, and in, in WWE, I think... Uh, you know, going a, a step further, you have neither the unions nor the athletic commissions, the regulation, right? So maybe that that's also a big piece of why uh, they never stopped. Uh, they never had to. Yeah, uh, that, that's a good point, Al, because boxing and MMA, in coordinating a return to, to the to the sports, uh, they have to work with the, the governments, you know, with the yeah. government agencies, with the state athletic commissions. And that's something that they have to do normally. But that's something, again, some of the other sports don't have to concern yeah. themselves with. Do, do you think that there is some impact from um, this pandemic on, uh, I guess you could say, uh, sports in general, certainly indoor sports, which is another thing that all of these uh, share in common. You're talking um, uh, arenas as compared to stadiums, open air uh, stadiums. Uh, do you think that some of this lasts Forever, as far as the concern, if not the the, the regulations, but the concern, um, it, it's just hard for me to think of of some folks who have been especially sort of skittish about the whole pandemic ever getting to the point where they're going to be okay. I, I mean, I think of the WrestleManias I've gone to, where I am literally in a crowd of eighty thousand people, right. and the crush to get into the building, shoulder to shoulder. Um, you know, it, it's hard to think that when, if ever, we get back to that? Well, I, I think of, you know, being a New Yorker, I think of Broadway. Mm -hmm. And how long is it going to be before we have, you know, theater again? And theater is a huge, huge part 
just as Madison Square Garden is and Yankee Stadium and City Field. It's a huge part of the, the heartbeat of this city. So I think about that a lot. But I think if there's anybody, if there's a demographic that's going to be a little hesitant to ever go back to the way it was, I think it's going to be people my age and older. You know, people who are a little older are going to say, do I really need it? I'll watch it on TV. Is it fun being there? Yeah. But if there's any risk at all, you know, I, I could see that happening. Um, but, but you know, most people, I think, are going to take, the, take, take, take their cue from the numbers and the, and the, and the doctors and the, and the medicine. And we'll see, you know, how dangerous it is. Obviously, we don't know yet. And we probably won't know to the beginning of next year. Yeah. Yeah. I also wonder whether it just sort of changes how um, live entertainment and sports are, are presented. Um, I know WWE has said coming off of this that they're sort of reconsidering the, the business model of, of running live untelevised events, you know, what are commonly known as house shows um, uh, anymore, or whether they just shift to kind of a, a, a television first model. And then there's also just the economic impact on the, the live event business. I don't know if you saw, but the Nassau Coliseum, um, the news just came out today, hours ago, that they're shutting down. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, that the owner is, is closing up and it's going to um, look for somebody to, to, to buy, uh, the I guess, the, the property or take over the debt for our, for the Coliseum, uh, which breaks my heart. I've been going to the Coliseum since I was, uh, you know, nine years old. Sure, um, sure. Uh, do, do you wonder about, you know, at least on the boxing side, if, if these empty uh, arena shows are successful, does it sort of make promoters second guess, well, do we need to spend all this effort on on filling uh you know an arena with fans well it's going to be very interesting to see because one of the ways that boxing is different from other sports is again the marriage with casinos yeah uh, generally speaking in terms of atmosphere and in terms of creating a tv product the fights the big fights that are not at casinos tend to be better um because casino audiences very often are, you know, high rollers who are just given tickets or gamblers who, who aren't really that interested in boxing. But I could see where, you know, boxing could return to the casino setting because the casinos are going to be looking for the publicity they get putting on a live show without being that concerned about a live gate where shows in big cities that are not necessarily casino oriented depend largely on on the audience. And, and keep in mind that while in boxing, while we think of the big shows being televised, a huge majority of boxing shows are not televised, mm -hmm. you know, club shows in neighborhoods, and you can't survive without the audience. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. But I could see a return maybe to, to the casino uh, setting for the reason I gave. Well, why is it, uh, this is kind of unrelated, but, but why is it that boxing has not followed that formula that wrestling, at least boxing in the United States, because I've seen uh, boxing in, in Europe, uh, certainly when, when the Klitschko uh, brothers were really hot and these shows that they would put on in, in Russia, uh, the, the big stadium shows with the, the production values and the entrances and the lasers and, and all of that. And even with the biggest of the biggest fights, um, in the United States, I think of the the big Mayweather uh, fights over the last ten years. Even Mayweather McGregor and and uh, uh, Pacquiao, they were all kind of you know look the same, right? I mean, they're the MGM Grand, and it's whatever it seats fifteen thousand or or less, and um, they haven't followed that model that I think WWE really is at the forefront of, at least for WrestleMania, their big show, 
70,000, 80,000 fans inside a football stadium that you pack and you have all the production value and fireworks and all that. Uh, why has a, have American boxing promoters shied away from that? Is it just do they not think that they would would fill a, a stadium? Well, it's 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 a very it's a great question and a great point that you see because it's it's, it's so obvious what a difference there is. I think the the answer is laziness, and I'll tell you why. Um, if you're going to promote a WWE show, well, we know who's going to do the promoting. Vince and the wrestlers are going to do the promoting. They have to. They have no choice. In boxing, a major promoter who's putting on a major fight, whether it be Mayweather or whoever, is going to get a very big right uh, site fee from from a Las Vegas casino and a very big live gate from that casino, which maybe they keep or maybe the hotel keeps. In a sense, the promoter views, okay, my job is done. I'm making money. I can pay the fighter. I can make a profit. I don't have to do anything else. I don't even have to think about how entertaining is the show. It's already been sold. I've already gotten my site fee and my and my uh, live gate. So th- again, that's one of the negatives of boxing being so closely married to casinos and to major casinos in Las Vegas and elsewhere. And of course, the proliferate proliferation of casinos in the last 30 years or so has only added to that fact. So I, I think it's a laziness that uh, that you see with boxing promoters that you don't see in, in a sport like wrestling. Yeah. And, and as uh, a very casual boxing fan, um, I, I think it it's maybe limited the growth of um, the audience. Right. Because even, you know, um, the, the, the big fights uh, these days, the Tyson Fury fights and, and uh, that kind of thing, you tune in. And it doesn't look different than any other, from a production standpoint, than any other fight you you would see. You know, there's there's yeah. nothing from the presentation that tells you that this is extra special. And, and that's one of the ways that people in boxing were hoping that boxing would learn from MMA, because MMA is a little tries to be, I should say, a little more fan friendly with the in arena experience, tries to liven it up a little bit, and largely because they're appealing to or trying to appeal to a younger audience than boxing is. So that's something boxing can learn, whether it be from, you know, WWE shows or, or MMA shows. I'd like to see an increase in terms of the uh, focus being on the in-arena in experience so that you can draw, like you said, maybe potentially 60, 70,000, you know, uh, event uh, uh, events. Yeah. I think another part of, of changing that culture is you'd have to flesh out the cards more, right? You know, if if you're going to put in the time and the effort and the money of uh, enhancing that that uh, live event experience, you're maybe you're discouraged from doing it if like is the case now with with these arena shows or these casino shows, people are only going to be in their seats for the the last fight. Well, in a sense, yes. And in a sense, I'd argue no, because. It's all about being at an event where you want to be seen. You know, you want to, it's the place to be. I mean, a couple of years ago, I was at Wembley Stadium and there were 90,000 people there for Klitschko and, and, um, and Joshua. Mm-hmm. And I have to think most of the people there probably were not all that concerned about who was on the undercard, even though the undercard for that show was not bad. Um, they were all there to see the main event. And for pay-per-view shows, I think it helps garner new fans if you make it a strong and balanced card um there's no arguing there but you know the reason Wembley drew 90,000 for Joshua is because of Joshua not because of anything else 
So you have to build the stars. And superstars come along in any sport, you know, uh, once in a while. That doesn't happen all that often. And sometimes there are gaps in years in boxing where there are no superstars. Yeah. You go from Ali to Leonard to Tyson to whoever's next. You know, it, it's it's not always smooth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, I've taken up your time, Steve. This has been a, a lot of fun. Uh, probably as in-depth a conversation I've had about boxing ever. Um, and, and you're certainly the person to, to have it with. Thank you so much. This was basically a big favor for me, and uh, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, anything you wanted to, to, to plug or anything for, for our listeners? Nothing to plug. Just uh, say a little last word about Stu, who's a good friend of mine and has been so key in, in keeping the magazines together all these years. You know, when I tell stories about the magazines, I do so with a lot of fondness, but they're also 30, 40 years old. And to think that Stu, until a week ago, was still working on these magazines, keeping them together and putting them out there is an amazing thing. I have all the respect in the world for him. He's a talented guy. At one point, he was my boss for a few years, and he was great to work for. He's a great guy, and uh, wrestling was very lucky to have him. Yes, absolutely. I I know you're in a Hall of Famer or two, and uh, I think Stu very much belongs in one as well you know i think one of the things that's really come out in the last few weeks is what a low profile he's kept you know um boxing fans uh, know your name and your face really well wrestling fans know um uh, bill certainly but sure. um i don't think most people even know that Stu is a a real person <laughs> uh, you know? well in wrestling you know you can't be sure who's who <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah Live all right Steve, thank you so I much i appreciate it this is a good talk Okay, have a good one. All right, thanks a lot.